Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. In 1935, the writer Babu Rao Patel and the publication Film India writes the following about Bombay's film industry. In India, with financing conditions still precarious, the, film dis- the professional film distributor thrives. He comes with a fortune made in share and cotton gambling, advances money to the producer at a killing rate of interest, plus a big slice of royalty, and recovers his investment by blackmailing the exhibitors into giving heavy and uneconomic minimum guarantees. His only aim in life is to multiply his rupee, and in prosecuting the same, he does not worry about the future of the industry or about the existence of the producer or exhibitor. It's a hectic time for India's film industry, as is for films everywhere, as the silent era becomes the talking era. Debrashree Mukherjee's Bombay Hustle, Making Movies in a Colonial City, examines this key period of India's film industry, from finance and casting to screenwriting and production, and brings into view the experiences of the marginalized film workers and forgotten film studios that make up this early part of the industry. Debrashree Mukherjee is a professor of film and media in the Department of Middle Eastern, South Asian, and African Studies at Columbia University. Debrashree edits the peer-reviewed journal Bioscope and is published in journals such as Film History and Feminist Media Histories. In a previous life, Debrashree worked in Mumbai's film and TV industries as assistant director, writer, and camera person. Today, Debrashree and I talk about the transition from silent to talking movies in Bombay. We'll discuss the historical context and working conditions for those in Bombay's film industry. So, Debrashree, thank you so much for joining me today. I wanted to start with talking about the historical setting, as it were. Um, what period of time does Bombay Hustle cover? What is India, Bombay, and the Indian film industry like during this period? So, first of all, thank you so much, Nicholas, uh, for this opportunity to talk about my book, um, so, as you already mentioned, the period of history that Bombay Hustle covers is very specifically what is called often in film studies circles the talkie transition. That is the years during which um, local filmmaking concerns made the technological shift from silent cinema to sound film the talkies, right? Um, so this kind of time period and is not just about a technological change, but it also becomes very, very exciting for me to study because there's a lot happening in this historical moment that really defines a lot in terms of how we understand um, India's kind of struggle towards independence, um, India's and, and certainly Bombay's uh, rapid urbanization, uh, what are the different meanings of the modern and modernity at this time, right? And then how does cinema and culture in that sense fit into all of this? So there's a lot happening in, in this period of the transition from silent to talkie films. It's a period when Bombay City starts to become the foremost center of film production, in the entire subcontinent. It's also a very fascinating period because it's the last phase of the anti-colonial freedom movement. There are also emerging anxieties about a partition, um, uh, which which is is said to be in the offing. There's also intense labor struggle and strikes in Bombay's dominant textile industry. And also very, very important for me in the book is that this is also a time when women start to become very visible 
in the public sphere as professionals and as activists. So all of these things make uh, this moment of technological transition a very important moment for me to locate a story of film, right, within a lot of political, social, and economic flux. Is, is this a period of history that's, I guess, has been covered before your book? So, yes, so the, many historians and from various different vantage points have looked at many aspects of the story, right? So there are many people, I would say many might be stretching it, but clearly a sizable number of urban historians who work specifically on Bombay City um, in, say, the, the 19th century, um, 19th to 20th century. There's also people that are working very actively and have done a lot of great work on the freedom movement, on various anti-colonial movements. There are people that have done great work on the changing status of women in this period. And there are people that have studied what cinema looked like in this time. But that's a very, very small group of people. So in a sense, I'm bringing much of all all of these stories together. um, And that's, I think, one of the big ambitions of of the book, to try and make an argument that we can't see each of these parts of the story as separate, but uh, we have to see them together. Um, So we will get into the the, the history and some of the the examples and stories you talk about later in the interview. But first, I wanted to, to to give you the space to talk about uh, the books, the book's purpose regarding theory. Um, you know, the, the book's description says its goal is to describe the quote, cine ecology of colonial Bombay's film industry. What do you mean by that term? Um, and if you were to apply it to, you know, say today's film industry, what are the kinds of things you would look for? So there's a lot in that question, and I really like the way you said, what is the book's goal in terms of its theory? So I think I'll I'll begin there. So um, a lot of the theoretical uh, framing and uh, uh, expansion and discussion I do in the book comes out of certain kind of core ideas um, that are part of, of my intervention and my argument, and also my very specific approach to thinking what is cinema. So one of the, the premises of the book is that cinema is a constantly mutating, historically unstable thing, right? That means different things in different times and different places. So it's not something that one can pin down. What was called cinema in 1930, for example, is not what you and I mean when we say cinema today in 2021. So how to kind of get a handle on this shape-shifting form The other thing that is also very important for me is, so this is a book about film production and film practice. So most books on film, most academic books on film, especially on Indian film, will be about uh, studying the films on the screen. So studying sound and image and lighting and cinematography. My book is interested in that which is beyond the screen. So the work of the making of the image before it gets to the screen. Now, in when it comes to the production question, I'm also very firmly of the belief that cinema is not made by one solo author or one solitary genius. Though there might be certain people 
in a particular film, like a, a very particular kind of film director, who might really, you know, have the lion's share of the decision making. But films are made by a very dispersed group of people. And I would go so far in my book as saying, by things, and even by the um, natural elements, right, like the monsoon. So in order to make these different arguments, I needed a kind of a theoretical framework that would allow me to be able to accommodate all these things together. And for me, cine ecology becomes a way to kind of frame some of these uh, beliefs and some of these arguments about what is cinema and what does it mean to make film. So a cine ecology then describes a very spatially dispersed kind of landscape where many different kinds of practices come together to make something called filmic meaning in a particular time and place. So it's historically situated, it's geographically embedded, right? But it's able to encompass a, a wide range of historical actors that all come together in a particular place and a time, like say Bombay in the 1930s, to create this thing that we now call cinema, which is a very diffuse thing. It's it's interesting you bring in natural elements, and 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 we're not going to spend too much time on this particular point, but it's I just found it interesting you mentioned that because uh, especially today, given that films today, and I mean as in right the second, look very different due to the pandemic making it very difficult to get people to gather mm-hmm. to actually film movies. Um, so, but but now to kind of go into the the, the history of the film of the film industry in, in Bombay during this period. Um, perhaps before we start, was the structure of Bombay's film industry different from how we might normally conceive of the quote unquote film industry, like it would be in Hollywood or something or something Mm -hmm. like that? So I actually also really like your point about the pandemic, because I think it really helps me explicate my point about the cine ecology, right? So there is no way that we can say today that the pandemic hasn't in some ways shaped the way that what we are now calling content looks like and where we get it, right? So to be able to say that we've almost completely migrated to online platforms for viewing and that there are certain kinds of subjects and stories that are more amenable to be working under a lot of restrictions of travel, of workforce, and so on. So in a sense, a virus has definitely made an impact on what cinema looks like in 2021. Right. So it would be completely fallacious then to say that uh, the entire cinema landscape of 2021 was determined by five studios, four directors or, you know, so and so number of technological changes without acknowledging also this huge um, epochal kind of thing that we're all going through, which is a pandemic. So in that sense, this is one way of thinking ecologically about things, that what are the many different kinds of historical forces that are coming together, converging at a particular moment to augment technological, social, political change. Um, So that's just, I think, useful for me to just underline that point. And then when you ask me about what is the structure of the Bombay film industry, how does it compare to Hollywood? So this also became a bit of a um, uh, um, a kind of frustration point for me 
Mm. Uh, when people kept saying, oh, the film industry, or you and I, when we talk about something, we'll be like, yeah, so it wasn't like that in the film industry. So what is this thing, this film industry, right? What do we mean when we say film industry? What falls under its ambit? What exceeds uh, this definitional category? And more and more, I started to feel that the term film industry itself, while it's very useful, is also very imprecise, Right. So when we talk about the Bombay film industry, what do we mean? Is it a bunch of film producers? Right. Is it Yashraj films and some a few others? Is it a handful of film stars? Right. Is the film industry Akshay Kumar, Shah Rukh Khan? And where is this film industry located? If you know Bombay, you'd say, oh, it's located in Andheri or maybe Goregaon. So which neighborhood right, can contain this thing we call the film industry? So none of this was making sense because it's completely uh, imprecise because it tries to limit the production of films and and, uh, the meaning of cinemas um, in some very specific kind of built things like buildings or neighborhoods. And that's totally not um, the way in which I think about cinema uh, and its dispersal. The other thing that I found was very misleading is that um, people in India, for example, will often call the 1930s film landscape the studio period. And what do they mean by the studio period? They often mean that it's very much like the Hollywood studio era of the 1930s. right? So they're directly comparing uh, filmmaking in Bombay in this decade with Hollywood in that decade. But those two structures, right, in terms of their financial structure, their organizational structure, their mode of production are very, very different. So it was completely inaccurate to say that the Bombay studio era, right, is basically like the Hollywood studio era. So again, that is something that I take on in some detail in the book, but how it's very misleading to say that there is a one-as-to-one kind of a relation. And then if there is not, then can we still call this a studio period? Now, that again becomes difficult because when you say studio period, you are also assuming that all the production of films was happening within certain kinds of business and organizational models that looked a particular way. Like they had a kind of a built structure that was a studio inside which films would happen that would have different departments that would have uh, its own equipment. It would have people on its payroll. But there were so many very widely divergent models of filmmaking at this time with many independent and freelancing filmmakers, with many different kinds of models of where film, um, films were being made, where the finances were coming from, uh, whether the actors were employed, whether they were being borrowed and poached, uh, whether it was a family kind of or, uh, enterprise or whether it was a joint stock kind of a, a, a corporation. There is no way that all of this can fit into one model, right? So one of the big insights uh, that I arrived at was this is a, a time of very essentially a decentralized business and industrial practices. And part of this decentralization is actually what contributes to the great vitality and dynamism of an industrial form that was also completely bereft of any financial or governmental support. So for me to to kind of hang on to this idea that this is a decentralized 
diffuse and, and heterogeneous uh, realm of play um, is very important. Maybe let's talk about the, the financing a little bit. I mean, how did how does you know capital and finance intersect and intersect with the development of um, I'm going to say quote unquote Bombay film industry from now on. Yeah. Um, you, you know, your book suggests that the entire industry was built on the back of um, of, of cotton futures. Mm-hmm. So it's it's funny how people seem to love that that part in the book, which is chapter one, which I have uh, always assumed would be the most dry <laughs> section of the book. But it's it's very exciting because it was something that um, that was very interesting to me, and I have gone into it in some detail. So when you're trying to look at the emergence, right, um, of a certain industrial form. And of course, one thing that I have to say at the outset is, as I say in the first pages of the book, is that cinema is is a very crazy um, and beautiful thing because it is at once an industrial form, a commercial form, a commodity form, an art form, right? A social form, a cultural form. That's part of it, the messiness of this thing called cinema. But if we had to look at it as an industrial form, and, and how is it that this uh, industrial form started to kind of emerge, consolidate itself, and announce itself as a viable viable kind of enterprise um, in a rapidly kind of um, um, uh, decolonizing, in that sense, uh, economic landscape, where a lot of Indian businessmen and entrepreneurs were very, very vocal about trying to build an economic self-reliance to the fostering of indigenous uh, industry. So how is it that films and film as an industrial form emerges? And you can look at many things when you try to answer that question, as I do. You can look at where did the labor and the workforce come from. You can look at where the raw materials come from. But you also have to look at where the money comes from. So in that question of following the money, as it were, I started to find that there's some very, very interesting financial histories that are entangled with this moment of the consolidation of the talkie talkie film in Bombay. Uh, And one of the things that was most interesting to me was that it is a fact that um, filmmaking at this time was uniquely undercapitalized, which means that there was very few avenues for getting finances in order to just start up a film company. And films are very expensive to make. And film companies are even more expensive to set up because you need a lot of capital assets. You need a place where you can film. With the talkie, you needed a place that you could soundproof, right, which would not have noise coming in from the outside environment. You need a lot of equipment, lights, cameras, tons of people to do many different kinds of tasks. So how is it that this form started to flourish? And that's when I realized that um, something very interesting happened, which was specific to Bombay, which was not happening in other important film production centers in South Asia, like Calcutta and Lahore. So something interesting was happening in Bombay, which is that Bombay seemed to have a kind of a surplus of uh, cash and credit finances that were being rerouted from certain speculative economies and some speculative futures trading from the cotton market, which needed a kind of a, 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 a different route. And cinema offered that very perfect place 
for some very high-risk speculative investment. Um, and this is also because of the colonial condition, that the colonial administration was clamping down at this time on some traditional forms of uh, futures trading uh, relating to cotton, the cotton futures market, uh, while allowing what they were calling more corporate forms of futures trading at the stock exchange, for example. So where was this this entire energy and this uh, this cash and credit economy going to move? Uh, and film then comes in at this time, and it attracts a lot of people that are basically very very um, risk friendly. So this is an this is a business form that needs people that embrace risk, speculators basically. Um, so I want to bring up two more. I think we'll bring up two more topics about about the book um, before maybe taking a big picture view again. Um, I do want to ask about uh, your discussion of gender mm-hmm. in a uh, Bombay film industry during this time, um, and kind of the the ways that that. For example, actresses had to navigate um, the expectations placed upon them. So, I guess could 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 you go a little bit in, into the role that 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 gender is playing during this time? Mm-hmm. So, as I've said often, and this is something that actually is a very well known fact uh, for those that study uh, cinema in this time period in India, is that the the woman right was posed like the most perplexing challenge to this new industrial and cultural form. And what do I mean here? I mean that as you're moving from silent to the talkies, one of the things that this new cultural form needed in one of its aesthetic promises was to be able to deliver uh, something that has come to define Bombay cinema, song. right? And where you're going to get uh, female singers ready-made for the talkie age, they were going to come from professions where they had already trained as as singers and dancers. Um, and those professions, right, whether it's often from certain kind of economies of patronage, like the courtesan um, profession, those were really had, had faced many decades of steady stigmatization till it had come to such a point that it became a very taboo thing. Uh, cinema itself, because it was inviting women from so-called questionable backgrounds to take up this new uh, kind of work profile. So cinema at this point needed these women, right, because they offered a very ready-made talent pool. But there was also this whole kind of social hullabaloo that these were not respectable women, quote-unquote. Now that became one of the immediate kind of industrial challenges, how to manage this problem because otherwise you would have to train uh, a bunch of people from scratch or you would if you wanted your ideal workforce which would be upper caste hindu preferably married women there is no real way that they are putting themselves forward at this time to to kind of as trailblazers so some of the earliest female trailblazers, right, in the sense of what often is called like the pioneers of the of Bombay cinema are women from very marginalized backgrounds, right? So women that may be 
Muslim, Parsi. Actually, even the Parsis uh, had a huge kind of respectability question. But Anglo-Indians, which is a very amorphous category at this time, which sometimes also includes Jewish women. Uh, so women of very different kind of marginal religious, ethnic, uh, and vocational backgrounds. They are the ones that, that embrace this industrial form, and they really make it um, as some of the earliest stars of this form. But a lot of this social um, anxiety also manifests itself in the subjects of the films that were being made. So apart from the question of the workforce, there's also the question of, I mean, the so-called women's question keeps coming up in terms of becoming the main kind of topic for films at this time. And a new genre that starts to really consolidate uh, in the time between the silent and the talkies is what was called at the time the social film. And the social film was a film that dealt uh, very definitively with the contemporary world and the so-called problems um, and challenges of the modern world. And at the core of the challenges of the modern world was the modern woman. So what was this modern woman going to look like? What were the the positive possibilities of the modern Indian woman? What was an Indian woman? What were the drawbacks of too much modernity for the Indian woman? So many films were being made at this time that took up these questions as a kind of a debate form. And so it's a kind of a public debate, right, that's happening about the modern woman through the medium of film, which is reaching many, many, many thousands of people in this time, unlike any other art form that had been seen before this moment. Um, And it's actresses who themselves in their real lives are being forced to... um, manage this question, right, of their own backgrounds and their own vocations, they are the ones that are also playing out these uh, dilemmas uh, on screen. So this gender question is very central to its time. And one of the things that I'm, I was very, very clear about wanting to do in my research was to try and, and keep a very alert eye uh, about women's uh, work and labor in this uh, moment of Bombay cinema. Because a standard narrative you often hear is, oh, there were no women that worked in Bombay at this time, apart from actresses, that you only had, say, female uh, journalists or female costume designers or female uh, producers post the 1990s. But if you start looking in slightly unconventional parts of the archive, you'll find that in the 1930s, we had women music composers, costume designers, film critics, um, what have you, right? Screenwriters, directors. They were, of course, a very small minority, but they existed. And it's very important that their stories are out there um, in in our historical memory. Um, And I think the book also talks about Again, everyone involved in the creation of a film. I mean, you you bring in um, the working conditions for for extras, for trainers. Um, sometimes quite tragic. I mean, there you bring in examples of extras dying on set, of trainers um, being unable to actually do the work they were hired to do, um, but still being confined to 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 the studio. 
um, I guess could you talk a little bit about about the your I think your book calls them kind of the more the more marginalized elements of of creating a film. What are what are their lives like? Mm-hmm. So th- that's actually one of the biggest challenges that this that I had to face in the writing of this book. So one thing that would be interesting to your listeners is that. Um, so the time period I look at, mostly the 1930s and the early 40s, at least 95% of all the films that were made in this time in India are now considered lost films, which means that most experts believe that we will never be able to watch 95% of the film output of those years. So we're working with less than 5%, right, in terms of films that you can watch. So that's already really diminishing the archive of what would be film history. Now, if you consider within that very fractured and fragmented archival background, how is it that you can try and excavate stories and narratives of people's work experience? That becomes even harder, right? So... Since one of my core concerns in the book is to think about cinema as experience and specifically as the experience of production, of making, where was I going to find that kind, those kinds of narratives? So I had to look in, in many, many places and be very creative in terms of trying to excavate those stories of, of what happened to people's minds and bodies um, in that encounter with technology and with a social industrial form. And one of the reasons why you see uh, in the book that with the most, uh, at, I mean, at the, at the most kind of lower level, lowest levels of the film hierarchy, right, the most marginalized uh, historical actors that you see in the book are the ones that you see have the most kind of violent bodily experiences in the book. Uh, whether it's sexual assault, as you see in the case of Nalini, or whether it's it's death, right, um, uh, on the set uh, for others or through drowning. Now, of course, these were factors of, of film work then as they are even today. But the reason that I was getting this kind of emergency narrative over and over again, a kind of a crisis narrative, is because only those very extreme cases made it into the historical record. And what I mean is that a stunt actor or a background dancer or a female extra, right, living and working in the 1930s, there is no way for her to enter into any document that will survive till today for me to go and look at, right, as a historian today. But only in cases of extreme precarity, when someone is assaulted and there's a police case, right? When someone demands their wages and there's a court case, when someone is, is dies on set and then it's reported in the papers, only those cases make it into archives and archival forms that have survived till today. So that's a very tragic and very interesting thing that's partly about the the status of the archive and different kinds of historical figures and their place in it um, and also partly about actual bodily experience um, so I'd like to kind of talk kind of outside the book now and I guess my first question on this point um, is you used to work in the in in the film and television industry um, what encouraged you to study it from an academic viewpoint? 
And when you were studying this history, did you notice any parallels with your own experiences? So, yeah, it all began with me working in film uh, way back when. Um, and I think you'll see, and this is something I've only started to realize after the book has been published, that now I see when I look back at the book, how much of my own love for film and my own experiences of making film uh, are, are actually there on every page which is not something I was fully conscious of when I was writing. But what I was conscious of, which led to the research for the book, is that I was very interested in trying to figure out when I was working in the early 2000s in Bombay, I was an assistant director for a bit um, on a film that some of your your listeners might have watched called Omkara. Um, I was very interested in trying to figure out where did we come from? Right? Like, how is it that uh, the film industry looks like this? Why is it that we make films with this, this kind of emphasis on song and dance? Uh, how is it that some techniques have emerged around script writing? Why is there such an emphasis on dialogue uh, in, in the films that we make? Various questions, right? The role of the director, the assistant director. And I was looking for some historical kind of uh, um, explanation. How to make sense of this. And uh, in that search, I just started, I think, casually to just look back and and familiarize myself with an earlier moment uh, of of filmmaking. And through that, then my questions started to change and so on. But it's it's very it was very uncanny for me. Uh, And I'll give you a small example. One of the archives that I was most excited and looking forward to actually exploring was a private archive in Melbourne, Australia, where a lot of the studio records and business letters and correspondence of Bombay Talkie Studio uh, are still maintained. And it took me about a year to establish contact uh, with the people whose family owned that archive. But when I was finally in Melbourne, and I was looking through their business letters, their contracts, some fragments of screenplays, um, the breakdowns of costumes, the use of props. I was just kind of jolted in a bodily way by how much of a similarity there was between that kind of paperwork in the 1930s and the paperwork that I was actively employing as an assistant director in the 2000s in Mumbai. Right. So it became very interesting for me to kind of think about the continuities and the discontinuities between then and now to think about and think against certain narratives that we have now become very used to, that uh, the Bombay film industry has always been chaotic and disorganized and, you know, a kind of not yet industry, a bit pre-modern just run in a particular inchoate family fashion. And it's only with liberalization in the 1990s that it started to take on a corporate form. So one of my fundamental interests in this book is to say that it's not such an easy and simple narrative of progress, right? That we were so backward then and now we are uh, forever forward now. But there were many, many different models of work and practice, and that a lot of the uh, the uh, the unsavory, the tragic, the unfortunate aspects of film work in then have actually been exacerbated 
in many ways today. So in that sense, right, we cannot pat ourselves on the back when we still have cases of sexual harassment on and offset, where we're still unable to address the question of the, what the hashtag MeToo movement unleashed in film industries across the world. Uh, Bollywood hasn't been able to address that. So there are many, many uh, things um, that I think the past forces us to reckon with in the present in a slightly more clear-eyed fashion. So one final question, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. If someone wanted to experience this period of Bombay's film history, um, I guess, are there there examples of these films that people can watch today? I know you said 95% of them are are lost, but Mm -hmm. are there things that, that, that people can see for themselves? So, I mean, yes, there are. And all hope is not lost because thousands of films were made at this time. So 5% of that is still a sizable number. Um, I would actually just like to plug a very uh, useful website for your listeners. It's called www.indiancine.ma.ma. So it's Indian Cinema. And that's a very amazing kind of a repository or a platform or an archive, if you will, uh, which is kind of designed with the intention of making accessible online uh, all Indian films that are copyright free. So you can actually go on that website and you'll see um, extant copies. They might be just poor kind of uh, VCD reps. But you'll be able to get a sense of the flavor of what film acting, film costuming, uh, film music, film dance looked like in the 1930s. And I have done a lot of work on one particular studio, which is called Bombay Talkies. So if you look at some of the films from Bombay Talkies, one very curious favorite for me is Prem Kahani, which means love story from 1937. Um, And one, again, very interesting film that, definitely my undergraduate students are always blown away by is also made in 1937 a marathi film called kunku um or duniya na mane uh, starring shanta apte who i write about extensively in chapter five of my book so two very different kinds of examples of how cinema in the 30s through the figure of the woman and questions around women uh, is dealing with this confounding thing called the modern world. So, thank you for listening to our interview with Devashree Mukherjee, author of Bombay Hustle, Making Movies in a Colonial City. One actual last question. Uh, Devashree, what's next for you? And where can people find your work? So um, a lot of things are next for me. Um, I'm excited that um, much to my, my chagrin in some ways, I'm going to stay in, in the archive. And actually, uh, my next project looks even further back. But I'm interested in the next project on looking at some of um, uh, Indian cinema's earliest diasporic audiences. And the connection there is with... Um, second generation viewers uh, of um, that are second generation descendants of indentured workers that were taken from India in the late 19th century to certain plantation colonies uh, such as Mauritius, Fiji, Guyana uh, and South Africa. 
So I'm interested now in thinking about Indian cinema's kind of diasporic history uh, vis-a-vis these certain what one would call South-South connections. So, um, yeah, that's all going to happen slowly uh, in, in the next few months and years. You can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews, plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. We hope you subscribe and you're listening to the Asian Review of Books podcast, now found on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, and share us with your friends if you want to support us, continue to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Priya Basil, author of Be My Guest, Reflections on Food, Community, and the Meaning of Generosity. But before that, Debrashree, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you, Nicholas. Thank you.